four price, one, two, three. I'm Annette, and thanks for listening to my podcast. Today we're interviewing my state representative, Four Price, who has been in the House since 2010, had a number of great leadership positions, and is a friend and a good leader for our state and our region. So welcome, Four. Thanks for being on my podcast. Hey, thanks, Annette. I appreciate the invitation. Please tell the audience a little bit about yourself. I ran for the Office of State Representative, as you mentioned, back in 2010, and have now served five terms in the legislature, representing... Wow. I know, it's hard for me to believe that. Representing uh, five counties, Potter, uh, Moore, Sherman, Carson, and Hutchison counties, and uh, enjoy the privilege of really representing, I think, the best people in the state of Texas. It's uh, It's been a fantastic privilege and have had the opportunity, as you mentioned, to serve on a lot of committees uh, throughout that time that I think have been not just impactful and, and helpful to the region, but to the state, including uh, natural resources and appropriations, public health, calendars, culture, recreation, and tourism. I've served on the Select Committee on Opioids and Substance Abuse, as well as chaired the Select Committee on Mental Health. I currently serve on a redistricting committee, which will be a big issue next session, and uh, the Select Committee on Mass Violence Prevention and Public Safety. So uh, a lot of different issues there. Born and raised here in the Panhandle, graduated from Tascosa High School, a product of AISD, graduated with a finance degree uh, at the University of Texas, and later attended law school at St. Mary's, and have practiced law over 25 years, or right at, and um, currently work as a trust officer at the Emerald National Bank. And you and Karen have four children, correct? We do. We have four uh, adult children. Our youngest just turned 21 last month, um, and uh, our oldest uh, turned 29 this month and was recently married. So time is flying by pretty quickly for us, and uh, everybody's doing well. Those are beautiful pictures of the wedding. Ah, thank you. For tell us a little bit about how the House climate and the legislature in general has changed since you've been in the House for 10 years. To me, it's changed. It has changed. It, it's it's an interesting dynamic. The House is a, a very uh, unique body, and it's 150 members from, obviously, all areas of the state of Texas. And right now, it's 83 Republicans, 67 Democrats. The Speaker of the House for the first four terms that I was there was Speaker Joe Strauss from San Antonio. Currently, the Speaker, the leader of our chamber, is Speaker Dennis Bonin from Angleton. And we have, you know, great working relationship with with among our members. Uh, the culture in the House has changed somewhat over that period of time from probably actually before I got there being, you know, the, the body having changed in its partisan makeup. But when I first arrived, uh, the session before I got there, it was 76-74 is almost an even split. When I first arrived, uh, we had quite a bit. We had probably 90, I think, eight Republicans. Uh, got up to 102. Now, obviously, that's changed. It's much more evenly divided. So, you know, what you see when those splits change over time is, you know, issues that are more affiliated with one party or maybe more extreme in some instances, whether it's Republican or Democrat, change when the House becomes more evenly divided. Folks focus on uh, issues of greater importance to a broader group of people. So, for instance, this last session, uh, a lot of the emphasis was placed on things like property tax reform and relief, public education, finance reform, public health, telemedicine, things that were going to largely affect, you know, geographically anyway, and from a population standpoint standpoint, a broader group of people, regardless of their affiliation to any particular party or their priorities necessarily. So it was a good session overall. I find it to be sometimes acrimonious 
The one thing I will say, though, and I think I get asked this question a lot, is I'm still very proud of the fact that Texas, the relationship between members is still very good no matter where you're from and no matter what party you belong to. Now, there's certainly partisan divides that exist, but very different culture that exists in the Texas legislature than what you would find in Washington, D.C., for instance. So I can argue all day long with somebody from across the aisle about a policy issue that we don't agree on, but it doesn't mean that we can't walk off the floor, shake hands, and share a meal or something like that which I just don't think exists in Washington. So it's a different culture, but still pretty uh, pretty intense. Well, thanks, and we appreciate all the time and energy you spend in your service for us. Well, it's a privilege. Thank you. The question I have asked a lot for almost 20 years now is, who is planning for the future of Texas? Would you like to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there there is uh, certainly... Lots of folks that I, I consider to be experts in different fields who are planning for, for the state. I like to think that our, our committees in the legislature and our, our leaders are looking at, you know, not just what's going to happen next week or next month or even next year, but when you look at big global changes in the state of Texas, what, what you know, what we should be looking at is where are we going to be in 8, 10, 12, 20 years? And I, as I mentioned, I, I sit on the redistricting committee, and one of the interesting things about that is we hear from state demographers all the time about trends and what Texas will look like in the future. Right now, we're being told that our population, when the census is completed next year, is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 29.6 million people. Uh, we're expected to nearly double that size of our state by the year 2050. Uh, we're growing at an average of 1,000 people a day right now in the state, and so when you look at what that will do over time to our infrastructure and what that, you know, what I mean by that is our roadways, of course, and transportation systems, but also our education systems, our healthcare and hospital systems, our criminal justice, the demand on natural resources, just everything that uh, may, may be affected by higher demand and a growing population, uh, those aren't issues that can be solved you know, in one legislative session or overnight, you have to start those wheels turning now so that 10, 12, 15 years down the road, you're you're actually prepared for them. Because if you wait that long, it'll be way too expensive and, and not very timely. You know that in 2003, we launched the organization Panhandle 2020 with our state demographer then, Steve Murdoch, here to talk about the changing demographics, the projections, the trends. We hope to bring him back next year in the year 2020 to actually kind of have a look back and talk about what we've done and what the challenges moving forward might be. Uh, Sitting in front of you is our first report on the economic implications of educational attainment. I know you read that when you first decided to run for the House. So what impressed you about that or scared you about that or whatever? (laughs) Both. uh, You know, I was, you and I had some very good conversations back uh, back in 2009, 2010. And and I do remember reading um, the report. And, you know, I I don't want to go any further without thanking you for all the work you did on Panhandle 2020, because I think when, when next year rolls around and everybody looks back, you'll see how accurate, you know, some of the predictions and how useful some of the information has been in, in being Thank a you. catalyst, absolutely, for projects and, and initiatives that have really made a difference uh, to our, our region. And one of the things that, you know, obviously uh, stuck out to me at that time and, and still is the importance of educational attainment and where we are here in, in the panhandle and, you know, what what we can do to actually turn, uh, I guess, the 
the trends to a more favorable place for our, our young students and what that will mean to us from a quality of life standpoint and obviously uh, individual success standpoint, but also a, an economic just impact standpoint and what that will mean for job opportunities and success and, um, you know, just the vitality of, of the panhandle. And so it was shocking to me at that time that it was as low as it actually was and, and still is to some degree. I think that what stood out to me was we absolutely can do some things that will make, you know, our circumstances better and we can take some I guess efforts and steps to to improve educational attainment, uh, reduce poverty, make sure that folks in this region know the value of you know the skills that they're learning in school, education, uh, educational opportunities that exist, the the quality of higher education that we have here with Amarillo College and West Texas A&M and Texas Tech and just you know uh, all the regional community colleges and everything that that I think in in some respects even even you know ten years ago. A number of students just didn't understand were viable options for them, you know, when they were in, in high school. The legislature's done some things over time that I'm proud of, you know, during that period that I think are reducing dropout rates, that are helping students stay in school, making it more personal and meaningful to them so that they have a purpose to show up and, and learn and you know, I think increasing those pathways to graduation was a good idea. Um, I always said we'll know right away, you know, if it's a good idea or not, because we'll see at least initially if kids, you know, in their ninth and 10th grade year are starting to drop out. And, you know, somebody that, that really, I think, was an advocate for that and, and really helped me understand why that was important uh, was not only you, um, but Rod Schroeder, the former superintendent um, at AISD just was a great advocate for showing us, you know, we need to make education meaningful to the students so that they have a, a reason to be interested and show up every day. And, and that made a lot of sense to me. And, and those are the kind of things that these these reports and, and the studies that are in the uh, 2020 uh, report uh, really, you know, hammered home to me that this is not just a city of Amarillo thing. This is this is a regional uh, issue that and should statewide. be and statewide. Yeah, yeah. that should be prioritized. Yeah. Well, thank you, and thank you for your interest in this and paying attention to the numbers. <laughs> not everybody does. <laughs> well, they are uh, they are uh, not great for our area and haven't been, you know, for some time. But the trends are, are better, and I think it's uh, largely in part to just the the heightened awareness that you know this this report in particular um, really focused on and, and made people more uh, aware in our area of what we can do to to make a difference. We have done a lot, and we have improved our levels of educational attainment, and we continue to work to do that. Our Thrive Scholarship, I hope, will really increase those for our students uh, going to Amarillo College for free. But we still have a long way to go, and we still have growing poverty numbers. Are there policies that the legislature takes into consideration on how to shift that trend? There are, and I don't serve on the public education committee or the higher education committee in the House, and that's where, you know, most ideas, you know, in the form of bills or at least issues go first to be discussed. And so if they make it through uh, those bodies, then, you know, the rest of the members have an opportunity to to kind of hear and see a little more detail or, or, you know, what's being advanced by way of an idea. Uh, I, I know that you know, of course, a lot of the issues tend to um, relate back to resources. So, you know, the states 
constitutional framework is such that we we can't appropriate more money than we have to spend or the comptroller tells us we will have to generate over the you know biennium so that is always sort of the guardrails within which we work and so I know that there are plenty of ideas that are discussed and then usually a fiscal note from the LBB is attached to these these ideas or the bills that will indicate how much an idea or a bill will cost the state. So in in many cases, good ideas are very costly, so they often don't, you know, um, move too far based on how much we have available at the time. Uh, there have been years that I have served where we have had very limited funds, shortfalls. Uh, in fact, in 2011, probably the most devastating uh-huh. year to um, the, the educational uh, sector was was uh, we, the fact we had a $27 billion shortfall. So every area received less funding in the state's budget, but education was hit particularly hard because it's the area that receives the most funding. So uh-huh. Article Three in the state's budget receives, you know, roughly all funds, about 37% of the state's budget. And so that is that is kind of how it works. But but there's lots of discussion about what we can do to improve not only retention in schools, um, better curriculum. You know, TEA plays a huge role in this. And, yes. and sometimes one of the frustrating things for a House member or a Senate member probably is you pass legislation which sort of sets a a higher goal or, or parameters, and then TEA will come in and make rules about how to implement that. Sometimes what you think will happen and what actually happens aren't always the same thing, uh, but they do they do a very good job. They have a tough job, and I think they have changed a lot over the years too, um, yes. to be honest, and, and I think have done some very good things here recently to help our students across the state of Texas. We have so many. Um, I think last, last count it was about – Five million uh, public education students. Five point four. Five point four, and you know, over twelve hundred school districts, all of them very different. Um, you know, property wealthy, property poor, urban, rural, highly populated. Just in your district alone, just in this that's, town That's correct. Alone, yeah, I have over have... two dozen two dozen school districts in House District eighty seven, and they are um, very unique, very different. But there is a lot of emphasis on um, making sure our students are prepared for the next century, that they are competitive, that they are looking for uh, avenues to be trained in, 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 in areas that are going to benefit them in their you know, job search and in their careers, which I think is that focus is a little more acute than it was when I got there, to be honest. And, and I think we are seeing a lot more effort. Um, and I'm really, I credit the past, uh, the chairman that I've been fortunate to work with in public ed in the House, both Chairman Huberty and Chairman Acock mm-hmm. and uh, Chairman Eisler. There have been some really good advocates for public education students, uh, really giving some flexibility into a system that, that sometimes needs that and also recognizing that you know there's there's just been some emphasis where maybe it was unnecessary in the past uh, or or you know outdated and I'm I'm optimistic I think uh, it's hard to get things through the legislative process that 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 sometimes can be frustrating but I don't know a single person really that wants to work against it. Sometimes it looks that way. Um, And honestly, there's some people that don't prioritize it, but um, it it is the future of our state. And so I I wouldn't want anybody to walk away with an impression that it's not, you know, one of the highest priorities in, in the state of Texas. 
you've heard from me on K-12 education and community college education and probably a few other things, and I've always appreciated <laughs> your support. Well, I always appreciate your feedback uh, and your input. And as somebody, and you've heard me say this privately and publicly, that is as knowledgeable as anybody I've ever met on education issues and um, you know, has a real uh, heart for educating our students. I appreciate your uh, insight because you're the expert. Uh, I'm certainly not, but I uh, always value what you uh, what you have to add to these conversations for I, sure. I appreciate that a lot. You talked about the the special committees, select committees that you headed up, both the opioid, if I can say right. that right, and the mental health. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about those just a little bit? Sure. Um, in in twenty. I guess after this uh, 85th or 84th session, uh, Speaker Strauss appointed the Select Committee on Mental Health, and um, I chaired that committee. It was a great committee of, of members, and select committees only meet during the interim, so they only exist between legislative sessions, and really the purpose there is to to do a deep dive and focus on an issue or a charge of issues that, that you were instructed to study, and at that time... The speaker um, really felt like our mental health system had huge gaps in it, and we needed some direction on how to uh, move forward in a very productive, positive way to reduce the stigma of mental illness and and make some headway with regard to legislation that could benefit, you know, the millions of Texans that suffer from a mental health condition. So we spent that interim uh, working very hard. We had, you know, multiple hearings. We probably worked harder than a lot of standing committees do during the legislative session to actually uh, complete our work and produced a report, which is archived. It's available online, um, which led to a number of bills, uh, probably more than a dozen passing in the 85th session uh, that I was really proud to see move through the process. We, we made tremendous headway. Uh, on how we deliver uh, mental health services in Texas. Um, we, we really did some good work, and, and Texas needed, you know, that, that prioritization to actually make it work. And so I give the speaker a lot of credit for that, just being, you know, a leader and making sure that we did that work. And, and that happened in the 85th, and then kind of on the tail end of that, we did, I mean, the next session after the 85th, we had a select committee on opioids and substance abuse, which I chaired that committee. And the uh, the issues are in some cases unrelated, but in many cases related because they're co-occurring conditions between uh, addiction and substance abuse and, and uh, mental illness. And what we saw uh, with the opioid um, studies um, was was a tremendous need for some corrective action statewide. And so we worked on that in, in this past session. That resulted in some legislation that passed and heightened awareness and uh, some of the things that, that result are, are good and don't require legislation, but, you know, it, it changes practices and educational emphasis and things that, that can happen um, that will make a difference as well. So those were great experiences, um, and by no means are those issues put to bed. Um, it, it really uh, it gave a lot of energy behind issues legislatively that needed to happen, and we continue that work today. So through this last session and now into the next one, we'll continue to work on those issues. And you, I know, are aware of the local collective impact effort around uh, behavioral health here led by Laura Street. Yes. And I think one of your bills provided some funding for some of our work 
that we're doing here. I also learned that our high schools are implementing a call-in system yes. for, for students who might be chal- having challenges that aren't comfortable talking there, about them at school. There's a few things that have sort of spun off of this yeah. activity, and I'm really happy to see it come to, to you know fruition here. Um, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute um, helped and do a needs assessment up here and help mm-hmm. Laura and the, the group in the Panannual Behavioral Health Initiative kickstart some some efforts that will produce uh, long-term benefits for us with regard to treating folks here in the Panhandle, uh, understanding our systems of care and what we need to do to change that. And so that's, that's helpful. In our schools, a few things are happening. Uh, one is that we were able to pass a uh, grant initiative through HB 13 uh, a couple sessions ago that actually has funded Texas Tech to implement what what's called the Twitter program up here in the Panhandle. Mm-hmm. has nothing to do with social media, oh. but that's the acronym because it's, it stands for Telemedicine Wellness Intervention Triage and Referral. Oh, okay. And so what it does is it's a lot easier to say Twitter, obviously. <laughs> But what it does is it allows, um, uh, you know, these, these school districts who choose to participate to, um, to have access, for instance, if they, um, they get trained, their educators and administrators are trained, and if they see a child who might be in need of some treatment or service or in crisis, then they can connect them through telemedicine to a, um, to a psychiatrist who will then evaluate them. And if sometimes it just takes one or two, you know, meetings and, and uh, whatever whatever problem is impacting them, whether it be in their home or otherwise, is addressed. And other times they, they need follow-up and they need more treatment and care. And, and that, that can be a connector to the right social service program or medical program. Um, and then, you know, in some cases they have removed children from school who were on the verge of you know um, you know becoming a danger to themselves or someone else and that is now in over 20 i think participating districts up in the panhandle and then this last session we passed a bill that i authored that embeds two uh, mental health professionals in each esc across the state it's paid for through local mental health authorities but they're housed in each esc because not every campus uh, has the benefit of a counselor what you maybe you and I would consider to be counselors some schools have counselors some don't some have guidance counselors some more academically trained and focused and you know in many cases the counselors are doing a whole host of jobs not just really counseling students and so uh, in those cases where a, a teacher or somebody in the school identifies a student but needs some help needs somebody that they can connect with or get some guidance from or direction from that's what these folks are, are now embedded in the ESC to do so it's only a couple and it's you know obviously hard for them to serve an entire region but other districts have like family advocates like AISD does and and so a lot of these things have just happened over the past few years and I think you know in this day and age one we're recognizing that it's important but two hopefully it'll it'll prevent some situations from getting much more serious and 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 worse and so um optimistic about that and happy to see all this come come to our area well thank you for all that work and effort moving into the next session we've got a year before more than a year before it starts and talk about when interim charges come out what you think what you see going into the session 
you obviously mentioned redistricting. This is a busy time. A lot of uh, comments that I receive from, from the community, they think that the legislature, now that it's ended, is really kind of off the clock or off duty <laughs> between now and next session, which uh, is, is not true. Uh, this is really the busy the busy time because you prepare and, and really have to be uh, spending this time not only discussing issues with constituents in the region, but making sure that you're getting your information for upcoming legislation and bills in order. And committees will receive what are called interim charges probably in the next six weeks, probably in November, could be as late as December, but typically by December, the Speaker's office will charge each committee with a number of areas, issues, instructions to to undertake and prioritize throughout the interim so that reports can be produced, conclusions, recommendations, things of that nature can be um, reached by the end of the interim period so that when we start the next legislature, uh, those committees have done, you know, important groundwork and and uh, studies on issues that, that should be prioritized. So those instructions and charges should come out soon, and each committee will then take them and schedule their own hearings. And it's 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 hard to get to Austin from up in the Panhandle, um, but uh, they are streamed live. Um, they are posted. I encourage anybody that's interested in, in whatever issues are going to be studied to pay attention to that. You can you can watch it online. You can submit written you know feedback testimony if you would like. You can contact the individual committee members or the chairs you know before, during, or after the hearing uh, through email or, or written correspondence, obviously, or calling them or scheduling meetings. This is an important time to do that, and so a lot of the issues that'll be prioritized in the 87th session are going to be worked on you know between now and next December, so or December 2020. One of which is redistricting. It'll be probably the um, you know one of the top three issues along with the budget uh, that are discussed and, and dealt with in, in the next session. And it's so important because it only happens every 10 years. Uh, the census will be completed in 2020, but the final numbers won't be provided to the legislature until the end of February or sometime in March to draw the maps that will affect congressional seats, Texas House, Texas Senate, SBOE, uh, districts and judicial lines. And so very important, uh, obviously affects a lot of people. We will, I'm on the committee, and so I lobbied hard and worked to get a committee hearing up in the Panhandle. We should have one in April um, okay. for the House committee. Um, and, and I encourage anybody that, that is interested um, to testify, to come pay attention to that, to let the committee members know what our communities of interest really are up here why, you know, it's important to have um, districts that reflect uh, those communities of interest, uh, that they be kept together, that that our panhandle issues are, are maybe different than exist in other areas of the state, and everybody just needs to understand that. So uh, these are really very important issues that will be prioritized next session. I think, um, obviously, those, those are important because they will last for 10 years. They'll last for the next 10 years. And um, our population is growing fast, so our lines are going to change for sure. But it is, uh, along with our budget and what I, I consider to be another big issue, which is access to quality health care, keeping costs down, um, and transportation. Those are, you know, water resources, very critical kind of kitchen table issues, along with education, of course, that if we, uh, if we don't continue to work on constantly, it's, it's to our detriment. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it already, uh, working hard, and I think we'll, uh, we'll have a good interim, uh, very productive one. Well, thank you. 
Anything else you'd like to add? Oh my gosh! Well, we could talk about these issues forever. <laughs> we um, it is. It's always you know an, an interesting time. I will say how how grateful I am to uh, our community, which is very engaged in this process. Um, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I'm on a hall at the state capitol with people from cities a lot closer um, and regions a lot more convenient to the capitol than the Panhandle. But there's not a day that goes by that folks from the Panhandle aren't there during the session. Uh, participating um, and as you know because you've done it uh, you travel to come sit in the hearing and you may be there for 15 minutes or you may be there for 15 hours and so it's really hard to make plans and I'm always so grateful because um, we have a ton of credibility up here and a lot of expertise and anytime we've asked people have been willing to to show up and participate and, and lend their guidance and suggestions which has been very helpful. Thank you. If you could tell our listeners about the Texas Panhandle, they haven't been here, what would you tell them? I would say, um, one, uh, what you know, if you if you don't like the weather, wait 15 minutes because it'll change. Uh, two, uh, we have the greatest, most independent, um, self-reliant group of citizens anywhere in the state. And I believe that uh, we're just, we're, we're very uh, helpful to one another when we need it. Uh, we're very charitable, philanthropical, civic-minded, down-to-earth, commonsensical people. And if you're not from here and you spend any time here at all, you will love the people here. Um, and that's that's our biggest probably uh, invest asset. Well, thank you for Thanks for being on my podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, especially because it's one of the first. I'm really uh, honored <laughs> to be uh, participating. So thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. I want to thank Chairman Price for the time he took for the interview and for his dedication and commitment to the people of Texas. My next episode will be with Dr. Michelle Smith, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at Raise Your Hand Texas. Thank you for listening to Annette on Education.